Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? This is from a letter that Emily Dickinson wrote in 1862 at age 32 to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. He was an editor, an abolitionist, an activist, and a soldier who'd encouraged young people to write something for publication in the Atlantic Monthly. I talked to Brenda Wineapple, who wrote a book called White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson, during the lockdown right now. So I called her on the phone to talk about Dickinson and what it means to write to somebody to understand whether they're too busy to acknowledge one's writings and whether it is alive. Dickinson is known to us as someone who spent most of her adult life in her father's home and part of it just in her bedroom, withdrawn, secluded, separated from the world. But Brenda explained to me that it is not so simple, that there's always been this impulse in America and for Americans and for America to withdraw from the world, to remain disengaged, to draw inward, to separate oneself. But that for Dickinson, this separation of the world and oneself was not something she could achieve simply, but instead turned to Higginson, who's been largely reduced to a footnote in literary history, and who was a remarkable man. Dickinson turned to him to get published. So Brenda wrote this book called White Heat to understand the friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and to give him his deserved status in literary and in American history. Brenda has written other books, most recently called Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and before that, a book called Nathaniel Hawthorne, A Life. Her book on Dickinson and Higginson was a finalist for the National Books Critics Circle Award. I spoke to her during the lockdown right now. So of course, on my mind was the question of what does it mean to be writing in solitude and not to be reached by others. I'd spent the first few weeks 
off the lockdown reading Dickinson and editing a small book called Dickinson on Love because I wanted something to provide maybe consolation or solace. I got something a little bit wrong about Dickinson, about thinking the poetry is maybe tentative, searching. And Brenda helped me understand that it's actually entirely certain of itself, that it is strong in the best sense of that word. And that Dickinson's poetry, while not easy, may be something that can allow us to understand what it means to be ourselves and engage with the world on our own terms. Thank you for listening to the Think About It podcast, and I hope you'll enjoy this episode on America's greatest poet, Emily Dickinson. Great. So, uh, Brenda, I'm so happy, first of all, that you're on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. So it's, it's a treat to be here. So we're both uh, in New York City, but of course, socially distanced in this time, sort of mm -hmm. sitting in our own places and in our apartments. And uh, you, you've written several books that I really greatly admire. Your book on Hawthorne Alive, I love. And then this book that really got me interested, reinterested in Emily Dickinson is your book called White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson, which as you said, it's not a biography. It's a way of maybe thinking about mm -hmm. this friendship between right. people. And I was quite interested in sort of asking you, first of all, how you got interested in this um, pair, which is, um, you know, the poet and her editor friend, uh, this action-minded, really interesting person who you give this incredible life to in this book mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. writing a biography. I was mm -hmm. interested first how you got interested in the two of them, because this is not a book about Dickinson or about Higginson. This is a book about their relationship. Right, right, right. Well, um, thanks so much for having me. And it's an interesting question because, um, you know, uh, my background is in literature and I've written a lot about uh, literary matters and figures and conflicts. And of course, everyone um, who is interested in literature, poetry, and writing wants to write about Emily Dickinson, but she's one of the most slippery and cryptic people that there are, and there's very, very little known about her, and most of what we have um, that surrounds her life or her artistic method is really speculation. So putting that aside, I would also say you mentioned my Hawthorne book, and um, because of my work on Hawthorne and because I edited a group of poems by John Greenleaf Whittier, I'd always come across Thomas Wentworth Higginson. And from the Dickinson angle, I'd always heard that he was a kind of bullet-headed Victorian editor who didn't understand her at all. And since I begin all my books with a question, it began to bother me the more I learned about Higginson. And I thought, you know, if we respect Emily Dickinson, if we think she is an original uh, and fresh mind, if we think that she uses language in these exceptional ways, if we think that she's one of the mavericks of not just the 19th century, but the 20th and 21st in American letters, why don't we respect her choice of friends because she chose him to be a friend. And it was that question that really kind of launched the book. Um, and it was a hunch. And I remember telling people, 
um, when I started the investigation, the research for the book, um, and in fact, a very eminent poet and I were having lunch, and he shall be nameless. And I said, he asked me what I was working on, and I told him the friendship of Dickinson and this man, Thomas Wentworth and Higginson. And he said, oh, Thomas Higginson, if she'd only written to Emerson instead of Higginson. You know, and I thought, you know, it's, <laughs> we're so prejudiced, really. And and we're basically, and I thought about what he said, and I, I, I encountered uh, over the years that quite a bit. And I thought, you know what people are really saying? They're really saying, if she had only written to me, I would have understood her. <laughs> right, right. It's interesting that you said you were you started with the question of this was Dickinson mm -hmm. at age 30, who her choice to write to Higginson, she could have written as a beat to other people. Exactly. She had a she had a she had a very wide range of reading. Uh, her father was very well connected in politics. Um, she was well known. Her family was well known in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts, and she could have reached out to anyone she wanted. Um, and but she chose him. I mean, that's what's so remarkable and so interesting. I should add one thing, and, and another thing that's interesting, and it tells us something about um, the state of the academy, uh, such as it is, and that is uh, historians, particularly scholarly historians, know, knew and know who Thomas Wentworth Higginson was. Um, they weren't as interested in Emily Dickinson, whereas uh, literary people, particularly literary scholars, um, didn't really know who Higginson was, except in terms of his relationship to Dickinson, and they thought of him as, a, as I said, a bolderizer. So it's very interesting because that also points to the kind of separation that we have um, in our thinking when it comes to either historical figures or literary figures and their contribution. And it always seemed to me that... Uh, the two really interact much more than we think they do. You mentioned Hawthorne. I'll mention Hawthorne again. Um, and that is, you know, one of Hawthorne's dearest friends was the president of the United States, uh, Franklin Pierce. I mean, it's hard to think about, really, but they were very close. And what you're saying, the division or the separation of history, let's say history, politics, what happens in the mm -hmm. real world, and literature as sort of, something of the mind, of the imagination. And Dickinson mm -hmm. becomes the figure for a lot of people. She has the is the figure, and it's very hard to counter this, that she is the embodiment, let's say in the best sense, she's the embodiment of poetry incarnate. She herself is poetry. Mm -hmm. yes. She's moved from the world, from worldly concerns, politics, history. And you're saying, actually, she writes to this man who is very much in the world and who historians know because she has a really critical role in the shaping of our country and the politics of both New England and the Civil War, et cetera. So he's a man of action in a way, an activist yes. Yes. on behalf of abolition. And if you, yes, 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 yes. And in a sense, you could say she, I mean, you could sort of reverse the terms too. And you could say that um, as one who loved language, um, as much as she did, she said her lexicon was her only companion. She liked to exaggerate. Um, but um, you could say that she was an activist, too, um, because her realm of activity was in words and language and the lexicon. And you could say his realm, Higginson's realm, um, was the realm of imagination, because it takes a certain imagination 
to see the country going and developing uh, in a different direction than the direction that it had been, which was uh, slavery. And he imagined an emancipated world and an emancipated group of people. So it's very interesting. And uh, you realize that um, these oppositions may not be as opposed as we think. It's interesting you're saying that she used language um, in an activist sense, actually, to reimagine or to imagine a world. And he mm-hmm. he did the same thing. He was a writer. And from your book, I learned that he'd written these really important pieces about um, his opposition to slavery, his opposition to mm-hmm. the Fugitive Slave Act, which compromised the entire yes. country, of course, and then drew mm-hmm. the Northeast into the same battles. Then he... Mm-hmm. And there's a line in your book, which I really... There's a lot of lines in your book I really liked, and there's one interesting one okay. where you say that Higginson admired the strength, Emily Dickinson's strength to withstand the world, that it wasn't weakness, mm-hmm. that she didn't retreat. And I think part of what I really loved about your book is that you say it is not the woman dressed in alabaster white who retreats and is afraid of the world timid in the attic there in, in Amherst, but rather that he said it takes strength to withstand the world and not to be drawn back yes. in the field of action all the time. Yes, and I think that um, when people ask me uh, what she saw in him was a kind of mirror, um, mirroring in a different domain of her own strength. And I think it took strength, um, both of them, as I said, took strength, activism, and imagination. And, you know, um, it, uh, I'm sorry to quote from my own kind of ideas and sense, but, you know, I basically early on in the book, as you, as you know, is, you know, I, I said that to a certain extent, that fantasy of isolation and the fantasy of intervention, you know, is very much part of a, an a American body politic and an American literary tradition, but they're fantasies. And we're both a little bit reclusive and activist. Um, both of us, you know, all of us in some fashion or another. And you can see that really in terms of uh, American foreign policy, and you can see it in terms of American literary history. So it's really kind of interesting. And then those are the questions that motivated me. And at the same time, I was very interested, as you know, and, and in her poetry itself, and the poetry itself, there's really nothing like it. It's, I, before we get to the poetry, this this mm-hmm. this link you just said, which in between seclusion and engagement or activism mm-hmm. withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So you have mm-hmm. you have people. I'm just thinking you have Jefferson, who's who builds Monticello to retreat, and is also so much in the world as statesman, diplomat, etc. You have right. He lives in France. I mean, he he loves the French. Right. <laughs> yeah. You have Thoreau, who is, so Henry David Thoreau, so Walden is both a retreat, which is a book that is supposed to be about a deeper immersion in the world. And as mm-hmm. we know, Thoreau, who gives us an idea of civil disobedience, who is very engaged in the issue of slavery and abolition. So who's yes, not he admired all, John Brown, that's right. Mm-hmm. He admired John Brown, as does Higginson. So these people are not removed, but feel that mm-hmm. you have to um, find a place in the kind of hustle and bustle of American life, especially kind of 19th mm-hmm. century yeah. And how do you get to, so did, so you're saying you want to maybe break down, maybe not the right word, but the opposition between engagement and withdrawal, which Dickinson has always put on the one side of. You're saying this letter, yeah. when it starts, right. it, 
it alerts us to the fact she's very much engaged with the world. Yes, exactly. I think that's absolutely true. And, um, and I think that anyone who writes in one form or another is engaged with the world. I mean, the act of writing, you know, language is a social acquisition. It, it, you know, she has the poem that famously begins, this is my letter to the world. Um, and so that in some sense, absolutely, there has to be that kind of engagement. And then just from a, in a more literal level, I mean, her own family was very involved in the goings on in Amherst. And beyond that, her father was in Congress. I mean, he was, you know, and, and she and her sister accompanied at one point her father to Washington. I mean, so there was much more that was going on in the Dickinson household um, and then we then we perhaps had thought about. But also, I think it, we, we just have a tendency to want to see things either one way or another way. And, you know, and and um, and we see the fallacy of that. If you again go back to the whole idea of isolationism, it, it just doesn't work. It didn't work for Thoreau and it doesn't work for, you know, right. uh, the United States in 1941. I mean, so it's. It, it, it's a very interesting phenomenon, really. And, and as I say, anybody who writes um, knows that you are responding to and integrated in the world in ways you may not even understand. And, and certainly, I think she does and did. And she was an avid reader. She she read everything. And the reason that she contacted Higginson was because she was reading him. So even if she, even if we don't read him, she did. <laughs> and it's important to respect her, I think. Are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? And he had written this um, little invitation, say, letters to a young contributor or... Is that what it's going said? How do you submit something for publication? So there's right. an assumption that she wrote these letters, although she published not even a handful of poems in her lifetime. So, but there's the sentence that you start the book out or part of the book is, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? <laughs> yeah. I thought this question yeah. is interesting in some ways. She knows she's preparing this. She's sending it to him unsolicited and doesn't even quite say who she is and says, are you too deeply occupied already putting into this little tiny question, this tension, are you too much in the world to tell me whether I'm alive? Which is quite yeah. interesting. So this deeply occupied, you could say I'm too busy to read some person's poems that I don't even know about. And she's, she's, she's sort of teasing him almost. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, because she didn't sign the letter and instead she put a tiny little calling card uh, within an envelope, and she put that sealed envelope within the larger envelope that she wrote to him. So that when he read the letter that begins, are you too occupied to see if my verse is alive? Um, it wasn't signed, but there was another tiny envelope within the larger one that said, Miss Emily Dickinson. It's, you know, very coy. Like, <laughs> very like already. And what's interesting when I think about how you open up the book to say my verse is alive, 
she thought, and Dickinson, this is, I think, one of the great things about her poetry. It's so vibrant and it is alive. Yeah. If anything, mm-hmm. this, and it's a lot of it is about death, as we know, or the poem you just referred to, this um, poem, This is My Letter to the World. Mm-hmm. And then the second line of that poem, I think, is this, is, this is my poem, this is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. Mm-hmm. But by opening that up, it's as if this is not even a relevant complaint. The world doesn't address her. So she will address and create the world. In this mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. idea we have of Dickinson that she couldn't get in touch with the world. She said, that is not my issue, my concern. Of course, the world will not address me or nature will not address me. It is on me to give language to this experience and therefore will mm-hmm. the world into existence. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's it's exactly right. I think that's a great point, Uli, because what she does is she wills the world into existence through language. She creates a, an entire universe of of sound and of sense and of meaning. And when you when you looked at her sort of um, between the two of them, and we I do want to give Higginson his due, actually, if you can give me a bit of a sense mm-hmm. of what else he was engaged in. And as you said, Dickinson is using the language that had been given to her, like all of us, we all learn language in, at home, in school, mm-hmm. and, and through reading. Those are probably the mm-hmm. or for her also for a while going to church. At some point, she stopped going to church with her family. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is probably mm-hmm. the language that's in her, in, her, in her mental universe at this point, her, how she was raised, then she goes to school for a while, and she reads quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shakespeare. Higginson... His world is the world of um, this, as we said, he's a writer who writes these essays to move people to take positions. So it's- well, not entirely. I mean, some of the essays that he loved the best and that actually Thoreau loved the best um, were really what we call today nature essays, you know, beautiful essays about, <clears throat> excuse me, walking through nature, about snowfall. Um, and uh, so his range in terms of his writing is, is very large. And of course, during the Civil War, <clears throat> excuse me, when he was um, he was uh, part of the first federally authorized regiment of uh, black soldiers uh, stationed in the South, which was very dangerous um, at that particular time. Obviously, um, he um, went around and he transcribed um, many of the songs that the formerly enslaved uh, were singing, um, the people, you know, down the South. Um, So we have a lot of material coming from him just because he was interested in the way a language works and music works. At the same time, as you say, he did write essays for the Atlantic Monthly. It's the same magazine as today about slave insurrections and was rather pro, which is kind of astonishing. Um, so he had a, a very varied career. He was highly educated. Rose said that um, a Higginson was the only person with seven languages who battered down a door in the Boston jail to free a fugitive slave. Yeah. Um, so you have here again these con- contradictions. And he'd also been a Unitarian minister um, but he left the church because it wasn't radical enough for him. Um, and so for him, when the Civil War came, he was very eager to uh, join this very unusual 
uh, as I said, federally authorized regiment of black troops in the South, uh, where he was stationed uh, in Beaufort, South Carolina. So it's around that time that he was also writing essays for the Atlantic Monthly. And as you mentioned, one of the ones is Letters to a Young Contributor, where he was saying, if you want to write, it would be something that I I tell my writing students today, if you want to be published, um, this is how you go about proposing what it is you want to do. This is your pitch. Uh, This is how you approach the editor. First of all, you read the magazine. Second of all, when you write something, you use a clean sheet of paper, you know, no blotches, you know, and on and on. And he said, charge your, you know, sentences with life. And apparently that's what finally moved Dickinson to uh, get in touch with him. But it's also interesting. One more thing that's interesting about this is the fact that after he published that essay in The Atlantic, he got a huge outpouring of mail um, precisely because of the advice he's given. But of all the mail he received, he answered if he answered anyone, he only, you know, very few, he answered Dickinson. And then Dickinson, who was very, very able, capable of shutting the door, you know, she wrote, the soul selects its own society and then shuts the door. When he wrote to her, when she wrote him and he answered, she wrote him back. In other words, if he had said something that was offensive or annoying or uh, you know, boneheaded. She wouldn't have answered. And she, she writes back, and so there's this kind of um, a kind of mystery at the center of this. And right from the beginning, she asked him, mm-hmm. "Is my first alive?" And then she says, "Also, mm-hmm. publication was foreign to my thought. I'm not interested really in publishing." So she's writing to a man mm-hmm. how you can get published. That's presumably mm-hmm. the the ostensible reason. And she writes him this little enigmatic packet with a Mm-hmm. a card inside a letter that he has to open. <laughs> he right. writes back, we don't know his letters. And then and then she keeps on sending him poems throughout her right. life. There's a couple <laughs> other people in her life, in her orbit, who she also shares poetry with her. That's right. But very few. I mean, there's her sister-in-law, with whom she's very close. I mean, in a sort of erotically charged relationship. Um, there's some friends um, from school uh, that she had. And you know, a few cousins, um, but very, very few. And the bulk of her poetry was either given or sent to her sister-in-law, who happened to live next door, um, married to her brother, or to Thomas Higginson. I mean, it's really remarkable when you think of the sheer volume of poetry that she sent to him. And and these poems are shared and we don't tell, did you get a sense of um, what her objective is in sharing it with him? Does she want feedback? There's, there's some, some of the poems are so startling in their certainty yeah. that mm-hmm. you think, what does she want? Someone to edit this? Unlikely, right? And we know that Higgins at some point tries his hand a little tiny bit and shifts a couple of things or changes a few words later on when he publishes after her death. But do you think she wants feedback or or engagement or does she... So this is, I think, a kind of a question for all the writers who do not publish the Kafkas of the world or something. Who, <laughs> who, who also does the same thing, who entrusts his 
writing to his best friend Max Brod and says, "Please burn right. all of it," and Max Brod turns right. around and publishes all of it. Right, so, right, right. So, what does she? What does she want to engage? Um, do you think by giving? And Sue is probably a different relationship than her sister-in-law, who she has this really charged relationship with. Yeah, but I think it was pretty charged with Higginson too. I mean, one doesn't exclude another uh, necessarily. I mean, later on in her life, she has a very charged erotic relationship with a with an older man, um, Judge Lord. So um, there's a kind of you know polymorphousness uh, yeah. here. But what does she want? I think she wants understanding. I think she wants engagement. I think she wants admiration. I think she wants um, a host of things that are, to a certain extent, explicable. As I said, engagement, understanding, and some things, and I don't think really advice, um, because I don't think she... Um, I, I think she humors advice. I think she knows what she's doing, but I think she felt um, very close to Higginson. And at, at a certain point, she accredits him with getting her through some really bleak times in her life. And, and you know, it's hard for us to understand that in that sense. But you have to also remember, and here's a you know a problem that often. And when we try to do any kind of historical excavation that we come across, and that is his letters to her are largely missing. And that's really unfortunate. Um, And um, maybe they'll turn up someday, but I tend to doubt it. So we would have a better sense of what he was giving her and what she got from him if we had both sides of the correspondence. So as it is, he's it's easy for us, as we do with Dickinson all the time, to project onto her our own sensibility. Um, so that's why I have to be a little kind of cautious in, in answering fully what it was she wanted. All I can say is whatever it was, she was getting it, or she wouldn't have constantly asked him to come to Amherst. She wouldn't have kept writing him. She wouldn't have kept sending poems to him. So I think the safest thing is to say she recognized something in him um, and he recognized something in her that they both shared because to a certain extent, in different ways, they were both outsiders to the kind of status quo that we associate with society and especially that's true after the civil war but even before and i i think that point you make that um her presumably her withdrawal from the world is not out of weakness it is not that she Mm-mm. wants to not engage with the world she actually and i think this is her poetry is this incredibly strong engagement with herself and with the world and there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a line I picked out, out of your book, which I thought was really funny, made me laugh, actually. It's Emily Dickinson's mm-hmm. line, and it says, I'm out with lanterns looking for myself. And I, <laughs> I love this line. of someone going out, <laughs> going out to, tr- yeah. to try to find herself. Yeah. And when I was just listening to you, I thought, I'm just asking you because I feel, of course, you know, this is a bit presumptuous in the position of Higginson, of 
receiving <laughs> the person saying, what does she want? And probably <laughs> the wrong question, but she's sending us, she left us these, left us these poems, yeah. so around 1800 mm-hmm. poems, and we're sitting here thinking, what, what could we possibly say? Um, to her, right? <laughs> to her. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, but you know, there's there's a couple of things that that well, something you're saying is really important. I think well, one two things. One is that line, "I'm out with my lantern looking for myself." It's so modern. It's like yes. someone could say this today. I mean, it doesn't have a kind of you know stilted, you know, our kind of stereotype and stilted notion of the 19th century. She's very fresh. She's very modern. The other thing I'd say that comes out of your very astute comments is that um, Higginson, to a certain extent is closer to the reader. In other words, he's closer to us because we identify to a certain extent with him because we understand the way in which he lives so much in time. He's so much part of history. Um, He makes himself part of history. And whereas Dickinson as a kind of both as a lyric poet, but also as a symbol of lyric poetry, she automatically lives outside of time. You know, she seems to kind of speak to us across you know, across the borders of chronology, and she's right there, almost in her own brain. So she, you know, is is two really different ways of being in the world that are ultimately compatible, because we, you know, our dreams are sort of more like lyric poetry, but, you know, our daily lives, you know, how are we going to get the groceries during a pandemic, much more live in history. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it, any. Tis the seal of despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. I was just thinking when, before you said getting groceries in the pandemic, we're both saying <laughs> now a seclusion here. What, what I found really interesting, rereading a lot of her poems in the last couple of days is that there's a, a lot of times there's circle around a kind of emptiness. There's a kind of ellipsis in the middle. Mm-hmm. So the one mm-hmm. of the poems you sent me is there's a certain slant of light. It ends mm-hmm. in the last stanza. It ends on there's a before and an after, and we're supposed to be in the time in the present, but we don't know what that is. So it says right. when it comes, the landscape listens, shadows hold their breath. When it goes, just like the distance on the look of death. But right, right. when it comes and when it goes, presumably that's where we are in the poem. But that right. time is not is not the time of where we can just make choices and be active. It's sort of it's the time of um, in one of the other poems of you know it's, you know after um, you great know, the, pain after great pain and stillness yeah. comes. So in some ways it's. It's that when I mean you are saying it's we're getting our groceries in a pandemic. Okay, we want to do something, but we also know we are outside of time doing a moment yes. of crisis and trauma. We actually, mm-hmm. it's way too present. So I, I was <laughs> some of the poems seem to be in this kind of space. It's not just 
the world is maybe yeah. too much with us or something, but it's that actually to know where we are in the world would mean to know where we sit with pain and, and uh-huh. that experience or, or she sits, she stays with loss where most poems, where most people probably shrink away. Where we, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's absolutely true. And the interesting thing about, you say, you know, in, in the poem, there's a certain slant of light and you go to the, you know, last, uh, stanza when she she talks about when it comes the landscape listens shadows hold their breath when it goes just like the distance on the look of death what's very interesting and obviously I'm not reading it well but in those four lines you know between the second and third line only four lines there's a kind of pause in reading shadows hold their breath when yeah. it goes just like the distance on the Book of Death and, and the line shadows dash hold their breath dash. Her uses of the dash in that particular case gives us that sense that you're talking about of the kind of the way in which we feel, even though it doesn't, but we experience that pause or that stopping uh, of time. And the same thing is true, too, in the poem you quote, After Great Pain, a formal feeling comes where she talks about you know, this is the hour of lead, you know, great line, the hour of lead, you know, remember if outlived. Um, right. And we only can know that after the fact, really. The living is different than the remembering, which is, you know, so perceptive in that particular case. And in, in that poem, the line you just quoted from, which is from After Great Pain, this mm-hmm. is the hour of lead, remembered if outlived which mm-hmm. is that we may remember our loss if we, but outliving is not necessarily triumphantly surviving. It just means we live on past this moment and then remember it if outlived. It's not when outlived. There's also a strange idea that the hour, mm-hmm. and I, when, you, when you were saying about the, the yeah. other poem, that there's a kind of a break between the line, hold their breath when mm-hmm. it goes. There's a sense when I'm listening now, when you were just saying these lines, as if with Dickinson, you're never quite sure whether this next pair of words, not even a full line, is the last one. Whether this right. exhale. No, no, that, right. No, that's a great point. Absolutely. Um, very definitely. In the, same, in the same poem, After Great Pain, the second middle sentence, the feet mechanical go around. There's right. a sense in which every step that she takes every new word is something you almost feel kind of grateful that she comes up with a word because it's not sure there's going to be another word. <laughs> this is it. This is, we are at the, at the edge of, of, of death or loss or our own mourning. And then they, they yeah. may not, we may not outlive this. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, she squeezes every, sort of bit of meaning out of a single word, because when you think about it, just in terms of the, you know, the length of the lines or the length of the poem are typically very, very uh, uh, short. But I think that one of the, one of the beauties of the Dickinson po- uh, corpus or the, you know, poetry itself is that the sort of, either you call it elliptical, I'd call it open-ended quality. Um, and, there's a way in which sometimes what we think she's saying means just the opposite. And what I'm thinking of is a 
is a, a great poem. Um, I felt a funeral in my brain. I felt a funeral in my brain, and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading, till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service like a drum kept beating, beating, till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again, then space began to toll, as all the heavens were a bell and being but an ear, and I and silence, some strange race, wrecked, solitary, here. And then a plank in reason broke, and I dropped down and down, and hid a world at every plunge, and finished knowing then. You know, people might know it, you know, mourners to and fro kept treading, treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And the rest of the poem proceeds um, externally. The external metaphor is is like a funeral, people walking around a, a, a casket and then a burial. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul. And then you have, you know, the, the, the coffin going into the ground and the last I, I've always in, admired really the last stanza where she writes, and then a plank and reason broke, and I dropped down and down and hid a world at every plunged and finished knowing that. And if I read it like that, you know, it feels like an end to something and finished knowing, right? Because it was a funeral in my brain and something happened. And But another way to read that, those same lines is to say, and then a plank and reason broke, and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing. Then, as if to say, yeah. and then, you know, and, and whoa, what happened then? Something else would happen so that there's an opening rather than a closing. Right. And it's interesting. It's probably the, I wonder whether some of in this, in this, uh, in this, last stanza it's such a graphic image a plank and reason this is a funeral mm -hmm. and they're, they're sitting around a, they're standing around a box not even a casket right. lift the box it creaks and then as if there's a depth to the despair of death there's something and it doesn't become and that's why i think the you know, of course in dickinson so many things are capitalized and then it hit a world at every plunge mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's probably the imagery that's familiar to her readers from um, the Bible, it's kind of biblical imagery. There's life after yeah. death. Mm -hmm. but this is mm -hmm. not life after death in this way. I drop down and down and hit a world at every plunge. This kind mm -hmm. of the, the lines themselves go kind of up and down. I drop down and down and hit a world mm -hmm. and knowing. And it's not sort of the Christian redemptive story that there's life after death or Christ has mm -hmm. risen for our sins or something, but something like what you're saying and finish knowing then. Yeah, and, and in that particular sense, the funeral in my brain, you know, and that sense was breaking through could be um, something a different, it, it, the, the poem in that particular context could be about a different kind of knowing, yeah. you know, that really that there are 
different ways of knowing. And, you know, she says, and then a plank in reason broke. Yeah. So that there's, you know, as she says in another often quoted poem, much madness is divinest sense, you know, so that here if she, she were, you know, inverts madness is divinest sense. Yeah. And so in that particular case, reason breaking down may give us a different way of knowing. And, and, and it's interesting that she goes so much to, as if she goes to death, funerals, sort of loss, and she experienced loss in her life. Her nephew died. She was very mm -hmm. taken with that, very fond of him, write these incredibly moving letters to her. Uh, sister mm -hmm. um, and she knows about the the soldiers dying in the civil war the son of the president mm -hmm. of college dies she's very aware of that so this it's never it's never abstract it seems and i think this is part of mm -hmm. what you're trying to do to stay strangely enough even in loss and grief we are so terribly acutely alive because we're so mm -hmm. we're so in pain and there's something qu quite interesting what that is, what um, pain for her is sort of, it's, it's not, she, it, she uses other word transport a lot. It's not that pain defeats us, but it gets us right. to another place, hopefully. I, I don't know if hopefully mm. probably not a Dickinsonian idea at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, but I, I think that, yes, I mean, if, if we were to see her poems along a single trajectory and and I feel that I personally can't because there are a lot of poems that are not about pain they're about ecstasy they're about yeah. ways of seeing they're about as I said you know different ways of knowing I, I quoted before much madness you know is divinest sense you yeah. know to a discerning eye much sense the starkest madness um, at the same time, she'll say the, the first line of a, a, another poem, you know, this world is not conclusion. In yeah. other words, you know, there are different ways of approaching, there are different ways of apprehending. And I suppose, absolutely, you're right. I mean, death was all around her. It's all around us now, for sure. Um, and, you know, and, and you're right, the death of her nephew, but that was later in her life. Um but nonetheless, the, the, it was difficult. Um, you know, the mortality rates in the middle of the 19th century in America are high. Um, but there are other things that also enthrall her. You know, a bird walking down the, you know, the walk, as she talks about. Um, you know, um, so in that sense, as I said, there's a, it's an interesting kind of mix. Yeah, it seems yeah. to me. Um, but I like this actually that it's interesting that we're going from this sort of she investigates um, in a pretty unflinching way death and loss, but then mm -hmm. ecstasy of life, which she finds in the, the bumblebees around her. And the, mm -hmm. it reminds me of Dickinson, you, uh, Higginson, you actually quote that. He says, If I could only make you smell the azaleas in my prose, yeah. he wants yeah. that vividness. <laughs> Somehow, with Dickinson, you get a bit of a sense, the Bobo Link or whatever bird she finds is one of the <laughs> 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 Yeah, 
<laughs> you you feel the bird hopping in her poem. It's not there's something so vivid about it. And to go no, back, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You know, this, that's it, it's true. <laughs> it's it's also funny because she drops in these things like the uh, the bubble link. Of course, I like because I like the word, and it's not a bird we. <laughs> yeah. But they drop in almost um, as if there's kind of the materiality of the world just so present to her. He's not no, enough. exactly. That's right. I think that's a, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's exactly right. That, that materiality of the world, you know, what trees look like from, you know, on a solitary acre, you know, with the feeling of the wind, um, the, the way a rose is in bloom. I mean, all of those kinds of things, you know, she's, um, her senses are so highly tuned in that particular regard absolutely I think that you're right you know the sense of what it's like in the fall what summer's like all of that this you know change of the seasons really is it's really rather remarkable and it's it's yeah go ahead startling and you said earlier it's kind of she can sound quite modern to us um, yeah. Oh, definitely. But there's you know. something startling when this after great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. There's mm-hmm. something so vivid about that image. Your nerves on edge, kind of, but at the same time, kind of erect, mm-hmm. sitting there, like in this with the heaviness. Or in the other poem that you just quoted, "This world is not conclusion." At the end, mm. he says, "Narcotics cannot still the tooth that nibbles at the soul." I know what a line. It's what a line. <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> the tooth that nibbles at the soul. It's, but you know, it, it almost makes your skin crawl. It's so powerful. I, I like yes. it, and I think, like in the other poem, you said it's the ending with the then that yeah. the tooth that nibbles at the soul is maybe our awareness of our mortality that keeps us alive. It's not that we actually want to do away with this. The whole poem is about that nothing works philosophy nothing will satisfy there's something in us that we want to know ourselves and that for her it can't be stilled (laughs) that's right that's right that's right and and for her you could say i mean not to be too reductive but it is imagination you know it's that kind of sensibility it's an ability you know whether you think in religious terms or secular terms is to it's to the ability to imagine alternatives you know and i think that's what's exciting to her in language itself because if we know any single word you know especially for example if you're translating you know from one language to another you realize there's so many nuances so many meanings you know so many connotations um and that each word opens itself to sort of a sense of excitement and possibility you know i dwell in possibility (laughs) a fairer house than prose she writes and and the idea that we could dwell on possibility then and not prose, not the mundane. And I think she says, I think uh, in, in your book, you she writes to Sue and says, we are the only poets and everyone else is prose. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right, right. Almost a kind of um, sly and funny kind of put down or say people will go on and on. And she, in a few words, gives you the immediacy of life. Um, yes, yes. And that's a good point, too, because, you know, and she's a very witty writer. She's funny. I mean, she has a great sense of humor. Yeah. Um, this was, you know, one forgets if one focuses too much on pain or death, one thinks of her, you know, as, well, is she very morbid? Is she, 
you know, very dark. And, and that's really not who she is entirely. She has a tremendous sense of wit. She's very much like the sort of 17th century poet in that particular regard. And she, she held them in high esteem, whether it was, you know, Dunn or Herbert or, or whomever. And certainly Shakespeare, and you think of Shakespeare as being very funny at times, serious and funny. I think as a poet, she's quite unusual to have this humor and to be so close to life. And at the same time, mm -hmm. was it this kind of the tooth that nibbles at the soul? She's mm -hmm. also, um, there's such, there's so much um, active thinking going on in her poems, but it doesn't mm -hmm. feel like academic or uh, religious or scholarly thinking mm -hmm. at all. It's someone mm -hmm. trying to find her place or to know her place in the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think she has a sense of her place in the world. I don't think, I mean, she may have that lantern looking for herself, mm -hmm. but again, she's, you know, she's also being coy. I mm -hmm. mean, somebody who says that has a very strong sense of self, uh, not a weak sense of self, you mm -hmm. know what I mean, in that particular regard, so that she is able to project this is what she was very good at, projecting persona. And she takes on in her poetry, as well as in her letters, various personas. She's not always herself. And as she tells Higginson at one point, you know, when she uses the first person, I, she means not herself. And it's, you know, in a sense, the first lesson of a literary critic is not to take the first person as, you know, the same as the author. And, you know, although there are similarities, obviously, she's very aware of what she's doing. And in that sense, she is, in a sense, playing and as, as a dramatist would play. And it's, when you're saying she has a very strong sense of self, um, when we read her, it, there's a kind of... Um, I do go back to identifying with Higginson. There's a kind of um, awe that I think, mm -hmm. I think he writes in the 1890s or something, right? Mm -hmm. he, he still says this is a, it shook him. This mm -hmm. shook him. And he never quite was able mm -hmm. to, to make sense of it entirely. And he, he dedicated himself to publishing her quite a bit at the, after her death and with her, one of her sisters and her um, brother's lover. So they all sort of get together and do this complicated project of, publishing Emily Dickinson, which lasts for 100 years or so. But she has a strong sense of self. When you read her, you feel you're in conversation with somebody. You know what I mean? Yes. Like someone's mm -hmm. trying to yes. talk to you. Yes. She's very present. She's not alien to you. I mean, people might read other American poets, like say, uh, I don't know, T.S. Eliot. And for many people, he's removed from you. Not from me. I, I find him not that way, but I know that many people do, but there's a way in which it seems as though she's writing from inside of you, the reader, which is kind of remarkable because by the same token, people will, you know, gladly admit that they don't understand everything she's, she's writing. But one of the things I find interesting about Dickinson is that um, her work reaches out to a very broad demographic. You know, whether, um, you know, it, certainly it's international. Yeah. Certainly it cuts across, you know, um, youth and age. Um, it's, it's really, it's enormously uh, broad. People who don't necessarily like poetry 
people who love poetry. I mean, and and that ability to grab the reader is phenomenal. And she's one of the poets. I mean, there's constantly speculation, as we said before. There are movies about her, TV shows. You know, who was this woman? And it's, it's not just because she was a recluse to a certain extent, although I would argue she wasn't, but it's because people find something in her poetry. Not every poem, but there are enough of them. Um, and they they know she's speaking directly to them without a filter, um, which is remarkable that she was able to do that. And uh, and I think she knew she was able to do it. And there are those who say, you know, her not publishing, her choosing not to publish in traditional ways was also a way of publishing. And I would even say that her shying away from uh, publicity was a way of garnering publicity. You think of more contemporary examples. You think of your J.D. Salinger's or your Thomas Pynchon or your Don DeLillo's. You know, there's a there's an aura to he or she um, who stays apart. It's, it's when you, when you said she appeals to so many people, I'm I'm interested mm-hmm. in this idea when she's very present to you as a Mm-hmm. one of her readers and it's interesting when we think of other people who we want to spend time with we don't expect them to be fully transparent to us and that's true to just say things we anticipate we actually expect rather the opposite you i want my friends to tell me things that i don't totally expect and funny <laughs> right. way poets, when people say oh dickinson is difficult you should say well one would say well that is actually the encounter with another person. That, yeah. But I think the the strength of her is it's not just baffling, confused. That what you said earlier when you corrected me, which I think you're right. She knew who she was. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, yeah, confused no. person out there sitting in an attic, you know, uh-huh. scribbling away. It's like no. <laughs> We want to figure, we want to learn something about her because we have a sense of strength that's really unusual. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I didn't mean to correct you. I just have a different point of view. No, I, think <laughs> you actually, I actually think you're right. I, actually think I, kind of mis, I kind of misstated that. She's not, because there is something when I said much earlier, she kind of feels like every every word could be the last one, but there is no no lack of certainty or sureness of how she proceeds it's not there's not mm-hmm. nothing tentative yeah um yeah no no I, th- I think that's absolutely right i think you know i think that the you know <laughs> fault is in ourselves you know um and in and our own ambivalence is in our lack of certainty in that particular you know case absolutely i think that's you know true and in thinking um, she has this uh, in one of her letters, she says, and I've always taken great kind of heart from this. She says, no is the wildest word in the language. And one of the abilities that she developed and she had uh, was the ability to say no. And that's very strong when you think about it. You know, people say yes all the time um, just to get by, to make other people happy, you know, for all kinds of reasons. It, it's a it's placating. She really had the capability of saying no. So 
So what she said no to was also any kind of traditional poetic form, um, any kind of traditional sense of how poetry should work or what the subject of poetry should be. Uh, she was willing to count, counter that. And that, to me, that is a, a, a remarkable strength, really, um, to be able to do that and to pull that off. And then if you sort of think of what it was like to be in Amherst, small town, kind of parochial, college town, to be a woman, you know, all the kinds of things that we think of as strictures in society, she, she kind of converted them all into assets. Um, and lest we think of her as kind of, you know, kind of simpy and fragile and reclusive, we also can think of her as kind of powerful uh, and angry even. Right. I, I think it's, it, she has served in a way, and I think that in the best sense, actually, for people to actually also find their own voices. So she's been read as a kind mm -hmm. of a paragon of, um, for sort of for feminist scholars, there's huge debates about that. So Susan Howe and sort of Gilbert and Gubar are kind of arguing: is she the mm -hmm. mad woman in the attic, or is she actually a uh, strength? <laughs> then, right, right. But then you know it's so interesting. Absolutely, you know that whole sort of mad woman in the attic thing, which is you know it was kind of groundbreaking when it when it happened, and then it seems almost like a trap. But by the same token, then you have people who kind of what's the word I want kind of um, absorb Dickinson and think they become her and that you know they speak for her in a certain yes. way yes. you know and and what we the kind of language we use today is colonize her voice or appropriate it and you know the interesting thing as you have done when you sit and look at her poems you just can't do that you just really can't do that and you know I mean it, it sort of happened to me as a writer in the sense of you know, unbelievable humility and inadequacy of trying to say what she said so much better. You just can't. But it's nice you do this in the book. There's actually a chapter in your book where you say she kind of interrupts your narrative. You want to tell the yeah, story. she stops story. it, yeah. And then you say, you yeah. totally assimilate her. And I also like this part, what you keep open is say, the great mystery of a friendship. That actually, mm, yeah. we don't, because as you said, until really pretty much until your book, sort of Higginson is dismissed as a bit, um, sort of he's this guy who lets us encounter Emily Dickinson, otherwise not much worth there. So, and you're saying, no, actually he's his own person as well. He grows in this relationship. And it is not for us to say, oh, Dickinson turned to this second rate person. You should have, as you said, one of your poet friends, that you should have turned to Emerson when... Yeah. When Emerson visits the Dickinson homestead, she supposedly declines to come downstairs and meet him. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, second rate, who's to say second rate, but right. we would be better. And as I said, you know, to me, I mean, and he was, he was well known in time. I mean, we, you know, we're so time bound. He was famous in some time. Right. Um, and and he was heroic. I mean, he's one of he's not anti-slavery. He's an abolitionist. He's really on the edge of things, and he's really yeah. out there in in so many ways. So, you know, second rate. Well, okay. So he wasn't. Um, I don't know. He he wasn't Melville, um, but yeah. she didn't want Melville really, and 
And, you know, Melville was actually very conservative. So it's a whole different kind of idea we have. Um, but also that comes from a lot of, you know, literary propaganda about what happened to her birth and who did what. And, you know, as you said, um, in the 1890s, when he was writing an introduction to the first volume that was published of his birth, you know, he basically said that when he read her, I mean, he likened her, and I think very um, perceptively, to William Blake. And right. who can sit down and say, oh, I understand William Blake. You know, it's right. just another world is opened up, really, and you're awed by it in that sense. And he had told the other editor, Mabel Dodd, uh, Mabel, sorry, um, Mabel Lewin, um, after he sort of left and he left the whole project because he said, now that the public's ear is open, we should probably leave Dickinson's work alone. In other words, yeah. he was very conscious of what it would take to get her published and out in the world. But once that happened, he wasn't really in favor of doing too much editorial surgery, as Dickinson called it. So, you know, there's a, I mean, we were always content to just have a half a story, um, but that's what's great for people like me or you. It gives us an opportunity to write a different story. <laughs> have you watched any of the adaptations? So Cynthia Nixon did a film and then there's um, this uh, pop star, Haley Steinfeld, who's now in a new show. Both of them based on Dickinson. They actually have you seen any of those? They're the contemporary. Well, yeah, the um, the uh, the the film, and I'm blocking on the name. What is it? Um, Passion, um, or I forget the name of it now. The one with Cynthia Nixon was. Yes. Uh, Terrence. <laughs> I'm blocking on it right now, um, but yeah, I reviewed that for Art Forum, okay. and. Um, um, so I'm very familiar with that. I had to watch it too many times. Um, a lot of work. I didn't realize it would be that much work. And I haven't seen the other um, rendition of the television uh, program that you mentioned. It got very good reviews and it sounded very, very interesting. Um, but I'm not really that fond of historical reenactments and the films that we're talking about. Um, I really, I think it was, oh, Quiet Passion. Um, yes. I really wasn't enamored of it. I felt that it was, it, it just really, to my mind, did not capture uh, Dickinson at all. It made her much more like the mad woman in the attic. Um, mm. But, you know, I'm it different taste. The one thing I liked about it that I I did like to first I liked it um, I liked that they're taking Emily Dickinson and turning it into into something I don't expect them to really recite all the poetry I thought they got the humor no. and they got wit and humor and there's there is a bit of a um, this lingering idea that she was just sad and didn't have a life and I think that gets corrected to the public. in that movie in a quiet passion. No, not in the quiet passion. She just no, no. I mean, she was hysterical in that. It's, you know, she had a epileptic or some kind of fit for like twenty uh, minutes. I think I thought, you know, <laughs> repressed no. that successfully. I only remembered when she was quite witty or something to some suitor in the beginning. <laughs> oh well, maybe so. Um, but 
Yeah, no, I, I think that the the television version or the streaming version is, is supposed to actually be very witty and kind of very kind of updated. Um, okay. But, you know, um, we'll, they, we'll both have sound, to watch it at some point. <laughs> they sound like 21st century um they definitely, and then that you know when I I could would not stop for death. They actually death pulls up in a carriage, and it's actually a real. It's quite it's quite entertaining what they do. It's probably I mean well, that's, for some, that sounds rather charming actually. I like it, that. You know. But well, I was going to ask you something else for um people who are listening to this because it, uh, for a lot of people poetry is daunting and difficult. And how would you go about mm -hmm. saying to somebody where do you start with Emily Dickinson? I mean, I have the. Harvard University Press Belknap edition mm -hmm. here. The tome, mm -hmm. it's 1,800 poems. <laughs> like you have a Bible in your hands and you start at page one in Genesis and then you get to salvation. <laughs> but you mean you the paperback? You mean the paperback? The I have the paperback? I have the hardcover even and it's so big. And it's like, yeah. how do you, how do people get into, where do you start with, with it? Because she's not, um, yeah. Blake has a kind of, this mythopoetic universe, you can find your way around characters or you know, people. This is Emily Dickinson. So how, how, what would you recommend as a beginning? Well, it's very hard for me to do that. That's, that's a good question. I guess I would say, you know, um, to anyone wanting to start, one of two things. One is grab some poetry anthology of American poetry. Yeah. Probably the anthologists themselves um, have picked some favorites of theirs that they think will be favorites of yours. The other way, um, if that doesn't work, um, there are, you know, the paperback. It is a big paperback, to be sure, but I would just, you know, take a volume like that paperback of Emily Dickinson and open it anywhere. You don't have to start at the beginning and then go to the end. Um, just open it at random. If that poem on that page and they're short doesn't work for you, go to another page. But probably for the very beginner, I would say, and I think this is probably where I began way back when, um, with an anthology of poetry. And that's how we all get started, really, because we have a group of poets to choose from, and then we see which ones, their style, their sensibility, their use of language and imagination appeals to us. So that, that's what I would suggest. And just to feel comfortable taking one or two and then putting it aside and then another day picking it up again with a, another one and another two. Yeah, I think that's to just dip in, I think to get the paperback and dip in. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing to do is to, um, I mean, Emily Dickinson famously put her poems in little packets. She sewed them up and tied them together something very tactile. So I think use a pen, mark, mark up your book, put little strips <laughs> in. I think that's very important to actually make it into a tangible object. Um, sure. <laughs> it sounds like fun to boot. It sounds like yeah. a lot of fun. Then you feel like it's make a your, of may, Yeah. Ha, ha, make your own little anthology. That's well, a good exactly. idea. Cut it up and make it into your own. Exactly. And then, yeah. um, I, uh, when we well, while we're wrapping up in this in this yes. moment of our own enforced seclusion, what are you reading or what are you turning to? Because um, you know, sometimes for me, at least this whole week, spending it in Dickinson's mm -hmm. world, it was there's a, there's a, it felt I felt actually um, kind of invigorated, not consoled, but kind of there's so much <laughs> uh, energy in right. her words. 
was amazing. What are you turning to read to in these days while we're all sort of in lockdown here? Well, thanks to you, I reopened my Dickinson and, and as familiar as I am with her, I thought, my goodness, she is amazing. I, you right. know, it's like listening to music, you know, you can have it in your head. You can think you know it, you know, you know, the Beethoven symphony, whatever it happens to be. But when you hear it, it's nothing like you remembered. And I felt that way about the poetry. But to be really truthful in these days, novels. I just yeah. want to get lost in a novel. That's what I've been doing. But yeah. the Dickinson is wonderful. I highly recommend it. You're right. Yeah. The energy is terrific. The it's not is consoling. It's exhilarating. Exactly. I think that's what, um, you know, we can leave our listeners with that idea that this is a power to actually um, brings you into life in an urgent way. Um, yes, but I'd also suggest Whitman. He'll make you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> that will be for your next show. <laughs> that will be for my next show, right? Yeah, he, he, he who loves all of America so viscerally, right? Yeah. He has this kind of yes, love. he loves us all. He loves us all. He loves <laughs> us all. He definitely loves us all, <laughs> right? She loves us in a slightly bracing well, way, I think. That's right. Well, thank you, Uli. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank I've you. enjoyed every minute. Thank you so much. And um, I hope, you know, this will lift at some point and we'll be back in the world of engagement in different ways. <laughs> I'll look forward to seeing you in person and yeah. continuing the conversation. Well, thank okay? you, Brenda, for joining right. the podcast. Thanks. Okay. okay. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.